This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. Her name is Bethany McLean. She is the author most recently of Saudi America, all about the rise of fracking. It's really a fascinating book that brings up all sorts of interesting things that I had never considered before about fracking, most notably the direct line from the financial crisis and the very low rates we've had to the fracking boom of the ensuing decade. Um, Bethany is a highly regarded author who has written numerous books, many of which um, have won awards and are and are highly thought of. Uh, she's one of my favorite writers. I find her stuff absolutely fascinating. And I think you'll find this conversation fascinating as well. So with no further ado, my conversation with Bethany McLean. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My extra special guest this week is Bethany McLean. She is a contributing editor at Vanity Fair. Uh, she also spent three years in the investment banking department at Goldman Sachs, uh, from which she joined Fortune as a reporter. She is known for her books. Probably the most famous one is Smartest Guys in the Room, The Amazing Rise and Scandalous Fall of Enron. Eventually, that became an Academy Award-nominated documentary. She also wrote the book Shaky Grounds, The Strange Saga of the U.S. Mortgage Giants, and All the Devils Are Here, The Hidden History of the Financial Crisis. Her latest book, Saudi America, The Truth About Fracking and How It's Changed the World. Bethany McLean, welcome back to Bloomberg. Thank you so much for having me. So I really enjoyed the book, Saudi America. And let's jump right into that because there's some really fascinating things. I, I have to start with a quote that really stood out to me. Quote, the most vital ingredient in fracking isn't chemicals, but capital. If it wasn't for historically low interest rates, it's not clear there would even have been a fracking boom. Now, all this time I've been told that it's technology that's driving fracking. You're saying it's not. It's ultra-low interest rates. It certainly is technology as well. Horizontal drilling um, is a big is a big innovation. So I I, I do want to I do want to give credit to that. But I think most people, when they focus on the problems with fracking or the issues, they focus on the environmental issues. Uh -huh. Very few people focus on the shaky financial foundation of of the fracking industry. And this is an industry that needs huge amounts of capital. Um, need huge amounts of capital are required to drill a well, and then because the decline rates of the wells are so steep. If you are going to maintain production or grow your production every year, you get on this treadmill of constantly needing more capital. So most shale companies have, have an, a fair amount of debt. And so if it weren't for record low interest rates, it's unclear that they would have been able to raise all the debt that they needed to get this thing going the way it did. Let's talk about those decline rates. You cite a study in the book, you cite a study by the Kansas City Federal Reserve that showed the average well in the Bakken region, first year decline of output is 69%. Within three years, it's 85%. So what do they have? A very short window to squeeze whatever they can out of that well? Yes. And you can make one well can be profitable in a simple return on capital analysis. But if you're part of a publicly traded company and you need to show growth in production every single year, you're on this treadmill of constantly needing to raise more capital in order to show production growth. And the big question overhanging the shale industry is, does that ever come to an end? Is there a point where this industry begins to produce free cash flow? Because right now, it, it, it doesn't. It depends on the largesse of Wall Street um, being willing to fund it. So, so let's talk about that a second. You describe how how fracking developed with thousands of wildcatters. They would go out. They would get these land leases. They were deploying the technology using horizontal drilling, lots of Canadian sands, and all sorts of other surprising things I had no idea about. You're suggesting that these one-off drills themselves, these one-off wells themselves, they were profitable for those wildcatters. A one-off well can be profitable, yes. 
the, the not as profitable, I think, as, as people think it is. I got some numbers for the returns at the wellheads on a bunch of the wells that Aubrey McClendon, who's the most colorful character in this whole story, the former CEO of Chesapeake, um, had. And even at the wellhead, those returns were 9%. That's before the cost of marketing and transporting the, mm-hmm. the, the gas. It's not clear how profitable, but some wells can be profitable. The problem is for publicly traded companies or for any company that needs to show growth, um, that they get on this um, basically the steamroller of mm-hmm. needing to raise more capital all the time. So you mentioned Aubrey McLennan. He looms large over both fracking. He's the founder of Chesapeake and really the father of capital raising. I had no idea who this person was before reading the book. Tell us a little bit about him and some of his outrageous leverage and, and some of the things he did. Really a, a colorful and fascinating person in uh, Saudi America. So I've been fascinated with Aubrey McClendon going back to 2010. A guy I talked to a lot used to tell me, with some degree of hyperbole, that McClendon was the most important man in America. And really? What he, and what he meant by that was that if McClendon was right and our country could produce immense amounts of cheap natural gas, that really changed the future of, of the country. It made us an energy-rich place mm-hmm. where manufacturing of all kinds would, would relocate. If McClendon was wrong and this wasn't economic and this friend of mine and his partner used to have this debate all the time. The partner would say the oil and gas were real. And John, my, my friend John would say, yeah, but the economics don't work. Um, Aubrey was the guy, the, the, the technological development of shale credit goes to somebody else, a guy named George Mitchell. But the, um, the father of capital raising was Aubrey McClendon. This guy was one of the best salesmen the world has ever seen. He could get anyone to give him money. I have this great story in the book from an analyst who was at a big investment firm who was very skeptical of McClendon. Clendon and of Chesapeake. And he said, I'd never let him in the door to talk to our people because we would have ended up investing and it wouldn't and it wouldn't have ended well. Um, and, and McClendon had this larger than larger than life um, personality and life. He really sort of remade Oklahoma City. Chesapeake was this extravagant company with daycare on premises mm-hmm. and a massage studio. I mean, it was Silicon Valley transported to Oklahoma City. Um, and McClendon died essentially bankrupt uh, in a fiery car crash in the spring of 2016, right after he had been indicted by the Justice Department, um, accused of rigging rigging deals to, to buy land. And when he died, American shale was flat on its back. It looked like this was this was the end, thanks to um, some, the, some of the strategy OPEC pursued. And so McClendon's death, was it was as if it underscored the, the, the problems with the American shale industry. There's a stat in the book that really stunned me. From 2001 to 2012, Chesapeake sold $16.4 billion worth of stock and $15.5 billion worth of debt. It's a nice balanced portfolio there. Uh, and paid Wall Street more than $1.1 billion in fees. So when you say capital was the key driver of fracking, at least at, at Chesapeake, that seems like an awful lot of money. That is an awful lot of money, and I'd add that that's not the only amount that Chesapeake raised. They raised probably another $30 billion in ways that are a bit more subterranean than public sales of equity and debt. They did these Enron-esque prepaid deals where they'd sell natural gas forward and get the cash now and not book that as a loan, but it essentially is a loan, right? You're pulling forward forward revenues and counting it today. Yeah, and they did over um, $20 billion of, of, of those kind of deals. And so... So, so even that huge, stunning number actually understates the, the sheer amount of capital they raised. And with all of that, Chesapeake never, before asset sales to suckers, essentially, <laughs> Chesapeake never produced free cash flow. Amazing. And so people would look at that and say, well, that's just Chesapeake. Aubrey McClendon is this, he's the larger-than-life character. That's not emblematic of the rest of the industry. But it actually is. Aubrey McClendon is, is the rest of the industry on steroids. Much more extreme. But the rest of the industry was cash flow negative as well. There's a data point from the book, and I'm, I'm thumbing through my notes to try and find it, where you said something like the total investment dollars that the industry drew in 
was far, far in excess of the total value of the gas they pulled out. Or, or yeah. am I misquoting that? No. It's a number from David Einhorn. So mm-hmm. people, you obviously know, and people on this podcast will probably know Einhorn well. But for those who don't, he's a very well-known um, hedge fund manager who famously called Lehman before the financial crisis of 2008 relevant again, given, given where we are right now. Right. We're recording um, this literally three days before the anniversary yeah. of... Lehman's collapse. Exactly. So in early 2015, David Einhorn, there was a lot of skepticism about shale for exactly the reasons we're discussing. And Einhorn was the first one to really go public and to put put numbers to this whole thing. And he calculated that um, the shale industry had outspent its uh, had outspent outspent its cash flow by 80 billion dollars. Out. So that's amazing. It's not that they spent 80, and and the time frame for that is 06. To 2014, it's not that they spent 80 billion; they spent 80 billion more than the value of the oil and gas they sold. Yes, that, that's just astonishing. And you have to remember that that was a period when oil prices were over 100 dollars a barrel, and it encompasses a period when natural gas prices were over 10 dollars as well. Mm-hmm. And so, it what the argument of skeptics is is that this is an industry that can't make money with super high commodity prices. Forget super low commodity prices. Right. Let Let's talk a little bit about that because there's a quote from an analyst in the book that I really liked. With oil, there's a price that kills supply and there's a price that kills demand. So two questions about that. First, explain exactly what that means. And then secondly, where are we in that cycle? Well, what he meant by that is that there's a price that's so low that nobody can make money, although... Meaning Saudi- people don't explore, they don't drill, they'd rather just sit around and wait. Right, and that actually put that that actually pushes us toward lower cost sources of supply, because if you think about the world, there are places that can get oil out of the ground for a really small amount of money, namely Saudi Arabia. Their, right. their immense oil field um, is probably the cheapest place to extract oil in the world. I think they've said their cost is about $10 a barrel. Although in the book... You describe that their own financial situation has yes. changed the world, so they they really need seventy or eighty dollars oil in order to pretty much be break even versus yes. their own infrastructure. That's because of their public spending on other things to keep a, a populace, a restless populace, quiet. So, but that's not the actual. That's the public spending they've layered on top of it, not the actual cost of 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 of, of the barrel of oil. But so at a, a certain at a certain price, nobody can make money, and so exploration stops. And then at a certain price, um, oil is so high that people start to look for substitutes. Consumers and start so, to throttle back. Yep. And-, and so that's what this guy meant by there's a price that kills supply and a price that kills demand. And so the next question is, where are we in that cycle? Are we about halfway? What are we, about 70 bucks yeah, a barrel at this recording? Yep. So that's um, much lower than people thought oil prices would ever be um, back in 2011 and 2012 when right. oil prices were over $100 a barrel, right? And I think it's still not quite high enough for Saudi Arabia to be fiscally stable, Um um, and whether it's a price at which U.S. shale can make money or not remains to be seen. People claim, um, proponents claim, that technological improvements and the beginning of fracking in an area of Texas and New Mexico called the Permian, which has been an oil field for a century, mm-hmm. but has turned out to be really prolific with this new technology of fracking, that these things are going to reshape the financial firmament of the industry, and so we're going to start seeing profits from the from the publicly traded um, from the publicly traded fracking companies. Skeptics say those decline rates are still bad. Uh-huh. All we're doing by getting more oil out of the ground more quickly with new technology is emptying the well more quickly. We're not increasing the, the amount you can get out over, over the life of the well, and this still isn't going to work economically. So the theory is that within the Permian Basin, even under $75 a barrel and under $5 the linear square foot yep. for the um, natural gas, natural yeah. gas that that's or is cubic square foot? I don't yeah, remember well. the... <laughs> The measurement, but but it, it's been three, four, five dollars recently. Yep. Permian Basin can become profitable at those those certain parts. Prices. Certain parts of the Permian Basin, for sure, can be profitable at those prices. Whether the whole basin can be profitable, because I profile in the in the book a company called EOG that's kind of regarded as the apple of shale. If there is a 
total counterpoint to Aubrey McClendon's Chesapeake. It's EOG, highly efficient, very cost conscious, um, basically kind of the technocrats of the um, of, of of the shale industry. Mm-hmm. And they say the CEO of EOG says all land isn't created equal. The idea that you can drill a well in one place in the Permian Basin, and that means you can drill wells everywhere in the Permian Basin and produce the same results, it's it's crazy. Geology is really complicated. And so he he believes that some of what we can extract from the Permian Basin is at, at, at low prices is overstated. Last question about Aubrey, because you describe in the book how it's not just that he's spending 2 and 5 and 10x on land leases versus everybody else, but his own personal life, he's all in on everything. There's no safe money. There's no, well, let me buy my... He's just fully leveraged constantly in every segment of his life. Right. He struck me as a fascinating character because he wasn't just willing to risk other people's money. He was willing to risk his own money. He risked every bit of money he ever ever got. There's this great quote from him when an analyst on a conference call said at one point, when is enough enough? And he said, I can't get enough. And I think that (laughs) sums up the man. But yeah, he bought the um, Seattle Sonics, moved them to Oklahoma City, renamed them the Thunder. He had mansions around the country, including and around the world, including this extravagant place on Lake Michigan. He had an antique map collection, and he was best known, you'll appreciate this, for an incredible collection of wine. Um, someone who knew him told me that his collection of wine at one point was actually the best in the in the world. Wow. Um, he had a spe- special love for the really big bottles. What are those things called? The Jeroboams and the, the, the Magnums? Bigger than the Magnums, yeah. the, the, yeah. the triple size. Yeah, Fat. so the really rare Jeroboams. I mean, he, he was a character. Fascinating. Let's talk a little bit about your writing process, and, and let me go back to that um, column about Enron, the first piece, that was pretty much the first major mainstream piece that called out Enron for, hey, maybe things are not quite as rosy there as the company is claiming. Tell us a little bit about that piece and what motivated you to turn it into a book. Well, so that piece actually came about because when I started working at Fortune, I'll give you a little bit of a backstory. I did a column called Companies to Watch, where I was supposed to pick stocks every week that were going to, you know, appreciate 20, 40, 60%. That's a thankless task. Well, it was remarkably easy because there were no (laughs) shortage of people coming by Fortune from portfolio managers who own the stock to company management who would lay out these great little stories from me. Mm -hmm. And I'd write them up because I believed. I I mean, I didn't. Why would you doubt them? Why would I doubt them? And I'd watch in horror as the stock promptly went in the opposite direction. So I started at a pretty early age um, trying to get to know short sellers because uh-huh. I was just tired of being wrong. It wasn't a, I just, I, I was tired of, tired of being wrong and tired of having people call me up after a piece ran and basically saying, you idiot. Like, how could you, <laughs> right. how could you be writing a puff piece about this insane fraud? And so anyway, um, so through that, I got to know Jim Chanos mm-hmm. and Jim, I think in the fall of 2000. To, to fall of 2000, um, said, why don't you take a closer look at Enron? And it happened to be, it's one of those interesting things in life because I have a weird background. I was a math major um, and I went to work at Goldman as an analyst out of college. And so I didn't have a writing background at all. And so it was kind of serendipity of my weird background actually being incredibly helpful sure. because certainly at that stage I still knew how to put together you know elaborate spreadsheets on a company's financials I was pretty fresh out of out of doing that at Goldman and, and their their financials were as transparent and easy to understand as any on the street right, right. so I'd say over my years in journalism what's changed is I've become far more obsessed with characters far more interested in the human story mm-hmm. but I'm still a numbers girl at heart and mm. so when numbers are contrarian and don't make sense and aren't what everybody else thinks or show a different picture than what the world thinks is going on. Like with shale, most people think, well, it must be immensely profitable and making gobs of money. Right. And no, actually, it's not. And so I'm really interested always in those disconnects that numbers can show you. How quickly did you realize something was afoot at Enron when you started delving into the numbers? So I would say I was skeptical, but not skeptical enough. My Mm -hmm. original piece, I actually think, should have won awards for the meekest headline in history because the title was, Is Enron Overpriced? Um, Yeah, (laughs) that turned out to be true. Um, Anything uh, over zero is overpriced, uh, so it turned out to be (laughs) fair. I just, I never would have guessed, um, I was naive then, I never would have guessed that a company could be so riddled with overstatements and outright fraud as, as as Enron was. So the piece was skeptical. It pointed out problems in Enron's business. Speaking of cash flow, it pointed out Enron's lack of cash flow right. and its burgeoning debt load and the fact that nobody understood how this company actually made made its money. But if you had asked me at that time, 
time that I would Enron be bankrupt in six months or nine months, I would have said, what? No. So you were looking at this as an expensive company, not a fraudulent company. Right. Right. And how soon was it clear that it was the latter and not the former? I think the Enron tale unspooled in an interesting fashion. In August of 2001, Jeff Skilling abruptly quit as the company's CEO, citing personal reasons, as everybody does. But the idea that the mastermind behind this company, who once said, I am Enron, was suddenly just stepping down, was a real sign to people that there were were problems. And then the Wall Street Journal did some great work pointing out these off balance sheet partnerships that the then CFO, Andy Fastow, was running, and the whole thing began to crater pretty quickly. So let's talk a little bit about your writing process. At, at what point, obviously, as Enron blows up, it it's a became book. clear, <laughs> wow, there's a book here. But some of the other books you've written, you've co-authored uh, with various people. Uh, the Enron book, the all, the all the Devils Are Here. What makes you decide to work with someone else on a book when you've been so successful writing on your own? Well, so the first two books I did were both big books. Um, The Enron book was, I was, oh, how old was I when I started that? I don't know, 31. And I'd been a journalist for a few years, but the longest piece I'd ever written was, you know, 3,000 words in Fortune magazine. I'd never even written a really long story, let alone written a book. And actually collaborating with Peter Elkind and and Mm -hmm. having my old pal Joe Nocera edit it was was the best decision I made. It's a far better book because of their input and help. I learned a lot about um, investigative reporting from Peter and... And I learned a lot about writing from from Joe. Joe and I actually co-authored All the Devils Are Here. And it was, you know, 10 years ago, about this day, we were sitting in my house in Chicago, just watching the world go up and in, in, in the financial world go up, go up in flames. And we were both, we both said, we have to do a book. And so it really just came about organically. It wasn't any kind of um, strategy on, on my part. But again, it's a much better book because of because of Joe's collaboration. The other two books I've done have been these mini books for Columbia and this book, Saudi America. America is a mini book, so it's only mm-hmm. 30,000 words. It's a short, quick read. 130 pages. Yeah, they're, they're meant to be quick takes or a slice of a topic. So they're not as all encompassing or as demand. They don't take a commitment of your entire life mm-hmm. the way the way these these bigger books on these bigger topics have. Um, too so, big to read. Uh, too big to read. <laughs> exactly. Sure. Exactly. These are not too big to read. Um, and so they're more manageable, I guess I would say. Huh. Fascinating. We're recording this not too far off from the anniversary of the collapse of Lehman Brothers. Let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, and, and during the break, we were discussing the issue that infuriates me and so many other people, why nobody went to jail. What, what are your thoughts on this? I do think overall it's harder to send people to jail than is commonly thought because there's a difference between what is unethical and what is illegal. For sure. And sometimes what is unethical is actually worse than what is illegal. And that's one of the conundrums of our criminal justice situation. Even Enron wasn't a slam dunk. It was a case that took years to prosecute. Yeah, you can that see was that, pretty much a, a slam dunk. No, I mean, it's, it, actually, it actually wasn't. Enron went bankrupt in 2001. Jeff right. Skilling wasn't indicted until 2003. The trial wasn't until 2006. And I, sa- wow. I sat through that. There was, That's amazing. In the end, what Skilling was was indicted for was less sweeping than you might expect. It wasn't just straight up accounting it, fraud? No, it was not just straight up accounting fraud because the accountants and lawyers can sign off on things that are clearly misrepresentative of economic reality. But once you've gotten accountants and lawyers to sign off on them, the Justice Department can't come in after the fact and say, well, that's illegal. So it's plausible deniability it's, and yep. by outsourcing yep. this. And, and there's some truth to that in the financial crisis, too. But what we were just talking about, which is what, what mystifies me, is why there were no prosecutions around what seemed to be very clear financial fraud, which was Wall Street's knowledge that the subprime mortgages it was buying did not meet the standards they were promising investors. Right. And yet they continued to buy these subprime mortgages and package them up into securities and misrepresent the quality of those mortgages to to investors. Sounds like fraud to me. It, it sounds like fraud to me, too. And what's, what's What's infuriating and upsetting about this is that the big firms all paid billions of dollars to settle these cases. Hundreds of billions of dollars. Yes, I think hundred- it's 200 and fo- the reference in today's column is $243 billion Jeez. in fines. It's but, amazing. But literally, if you read the, the, the settlements, you can't tell what happened. You can't tell if the Justice Department is extorting the firms trying to get money out of them right. or if something really bad happened here because it's all cloaked. It's a settlement. It's all part of what Close I- to doing business. 
it's all part of what I call the shadow legal system, which is the way big uh-huh. corporations uh, settle allegations outside of the public eye. So there are no court documents. There's no trial. Look, my husband is a litigator. I get why this happens. But I think it's really bad for democracy and really bad for people's faith in our system to have so many of these big cases settled in these ways that shed absolutely no light on what actually happened. And now some of these cases were settled with admissions of guilt, but a lot of them were no admission, no no deny, just write a check. Just write a check. No 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 clear sign of how this happened within a company of who was responsible, of who actually knew this was taking place, of who benefited from it. Just so cloaked that you can't tell from the outside what actually happened. Just write a check and make it go away. So you're with shareholders' money, by the way. Since since you're a numbers girl and you spent all that time wading into the the balance sheets of um, Enron, there's two really interesting things that come out of that. One is the eventual collapse of Arthur Anderson, their auditor. They were auditor for a bunch of frauds, not just Enron, but WorldCom. And I think WorldCom, uh, Enron was just the, the last straw. In Jesse Isinger's book, whose title I can't say on the radio, The Chicken Bleep Club, um, basically explains that was the beginning of the end for the Department of Justice Plus, 9-11 moved a ton of forensic accountants to follow the money. Um, but that's really a part of it. The, the other part of it, I'm convinced, was, con- was that the prosecutors had been convinced that if you bring charges, we just bailed out all these banks. You're going to send us right back into the abyss. They scared the hell out of everybody. I think that's true, too. And I think there is a third component as well, which is that when Enron was prosecuted so aggressively, it was those guys down in Texas. They weren't our crowd. Right. The bankers in the financial crisis were our crowd. They were the people huh. that the people in Washington know intimately. So there was a preconception that, well, our crowd couldn't have engaged in fraud. They didn't. They, they're not actually guilty. They just got caught up in the hype of the moment, whereas when it was those guys down in Texas, who who aren't our friends? It was an entirely different issue. Let me push back against you on okay. that. Okay. So my theory. <laughs> so that's 08. We had the analyst scandal a few years before that. We had the IPO spinning scandal a few years before that. We had uh, just go down the list of of all sorts of fraud. Um, I mentioned Lehman Brothers. Given your background, Repo 105. Moving fifty plus billion dollars off the balance sheet right. every quarter, hiding that from investors. How is that not anything more than felony fraud? Right. Well, that's my point. Is that if the, one of the reasons the Justice Department was as not willing to be as aggressive as they were with Enron mm-hmm. is because these guys were people they knew, and so they weren't. Going DOJ to be. knows Lehman Brothers. I can understand if you're going to say the U.S. Attorney for the Second District, maybe. Right. And even I, then, more more of. Hank Paulson, Tim Geithner, they right. all they all know each other. For sure. It's not a it's it's different than it's different than those people down in Texas, those energy people down in Texas. Again, hmm. I think your two reasons are bigger. I think I think that, that what happened with Arthur Anderson is absolutely part of the explanation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the fear of crushing the very firms you had just rescued is 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 bigger too. I'd put those among the top two reasons. But I think there also is this sort of interesting component of of it's easier to to aggressively prosecute an outsider than it is an insider. Do you remember the op-ed written by, and it was unusual because it was a sitting judge in the Southern District, Judge Rakoff? Judge Rakoff, yeah. Who, who basically said the DOJ chickened out. They they absolutely were crimes committed, and all of the explanations claiming otherwise ring hollow. When was the last time we had a sitting judge who covers Wall Street, that's his jurisdiction, Write an op-ed saying, why aren't you guys prosecuting? Yep. I think it um, it's a question that will always remain from, from this episode, despite uh, the the then um, um, head of the Southern District trying to distract us all with insider trading charges. So let's talk about another bank that you've written about. Um, what's going on with Wells Fargo? They were once the model bank for good corporate behavior. How did they go so far off the rails? Oh, my gosh. And by the way, during this conversation— We've already opened three checking accounts in your name from Wells Fargo, which 
and an insurance bill. So <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> it's, I mean, it, it, it actually is really disheartening to me because I, I, it makes you always have to wonder when a company seems to be so perfect. Is there some deep, dark secret lurking under there? And Wells Fargo is the bank that came through the financial crisis better than other any any, any other bank. They build themselves as just this good-hearted community bank. The right. culture is the old Norwest Bank, um, which had merged with Wells Fargo back in I think um, the late '90s. And um, Norwest is a Minneapolis headquartered firm. You know, it's got that Midwestern sort of goodness to it. Right. And they always in Washington presented themselves as the community bank. You know, it we're not was, we're, was the biggest holding of Warren Buffett for the longest right. time. We're not like all those other firms out there. And then it turns out they have this really ugly um, sales culture that puts immense amounts of pressure on the people in the system who are least able to deal with it. You know, those at the bottom of the rung, the tellers, right. to meet these utterly horrible sales goals. And it, we all thought that the problem was confined to the retail bank because Wells Fargo has these three different segments. It's got its community banking segment, it has mm -hmm. its corporate banking segment, and it has its investment management segment. But now it turns out that the sales pressure was felt elsewhere, too. There were crazy goals in, in the corporate bank and crazy goals, which is what the subject of a couple of recent articles I've done in the investment management division, where people were given given quotas in, in, in the same way. So this really intense sales culture had actually spread throughout um, the entire bank. Where did that sales culture originate? Where did that come from? So I think it came from Dick Kovacevic, who mm -hmm. was the CEO of Wells Fargo through the financial crisis. And he was the first to start talking about banks as stores, where you were supposed to sell things to customers. And he's the one who coined the now infamous phrase, eight is great, which I is get, getting every customer at Wells Fargo had to um, to have at least eight products with, with the firm. That's where it came from. Whether it would have... A lot of things from securitization to Wells Fargo sales culture can start in a place that's perfectly okay and then get taken to an extreme and tip over into a place that is so not okay. And whether whether if Kovacevic had stayed at Wells Fargo, whether the sales culture would have tipped over that line or not is, mm -hmm. is, is a debate that nobody will ever be able to answer. I mean, right? but obviously it tipped over that line pretty soon after he left. So with these his policies... Why did everybody stay with this if this was such a obviously terrible idea? I think his successor, John Stumpf, who by all accounts is a lovely man, was not the sort of executive who was going to radically reverse course. And why would you when it appeared to work so well? Wall Street celebrated Wells Fargo. It had the highest PE multiple of any bank for a long time, because precisely because it did have these amazing cross-sell numbers. And so when the strategy appeared to be working and was winning you all these plot all these all these all this praise why would you stop it why would you listen to the whistleblowers inside the bank who are saying this is a real problem you know the metaphor that always sticks out in my mind is you could set the track record on the straightaway but if you can't make the turn and you hit the wall, that record shouldn't count. And and that's kind of like Wells Fargo is doing. I, I, I like that. The thing that really bothers me about Wells Fargo is that it seems to me a perversion of capitalism in this, this sense. I have nothing against the people at the top taking a lot of money as long as they also bear all the risk when right. things go wrong. Wells Fargo managed to put in place a system where the people at the very bottom didn't make much money, and they bore all the risk because they were the ones who had these horrible sales goals to meet. They were the ones who got fired if they didn't meet them, and they were the ones who got fired if they met them in a way that in a way that was was unethical. And so all the pressure, all the all the all none of the reward, but all the risk went to the people at the bottom of the pyramid, and that I think is is a perversion, huh, to say the least. Can you stick around a bit? I have a ton yeah. more questions for you. Sure. We have been speaking with Bethany McLean. She is the author, most recently, of Saudi America. If you enjoy this conversation, come back and check out the podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things fracking, fraud, and financial crises. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. You can check out my daily column on bloomberg.com. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. Bethany, thank you so much for doing this. I have to tell you, I sat on the beach uh, a couple of weeks ago um, and read Saudi America. It's such a weird 
pair of words to say because I you feel like you're saying it wrong because you are. Um, and it really it was a fast and really informative and, and interesting read. Not just Aubrey, but the whole concept of money driving cat low cost of capital driving fracking, changing the world of energy, changing uh, the Middle East, changing the relationship of Russia to Europe. It's really a credibly intricate web. And you can't help, especially this week, you can't help but draw a line from Alan Greenspan and the post-9-11 pre-financial crisis interest rates straight to the boom in fracking. So the best compliment I could ever get is that one of my books could be considered a beach read. So I'm absolutely beyond oh, thrilled to hear that. I, That's awesome. It literally, literally, not just a beach read, but it was compelling and in not like I don't get to the beach all that early. From, from 9, 10 o'clock in the morning to 2, 3 in the afternoon, straight through. It, it really was a, a great narrative. There are great characters and there are some really interesting insights. What motivated you to, to start looking at fracking. Well, so I was always obsessed with Aubrey McClendon. Because really? Because who couldn't be? So from Is this I, related to Enron because he's in a similar part of the I country? I guess. I have an affinity for these these business, these characters in the world of business who come along every so often who are larger than life and who really prove the old adage that truth is stranger than fiction uh-huh. and who could be stars in their own Shakespearean drama. Whether it's Jeff Skilling, whether it's Mike Pearson, whether it's Aubrey McClendon, I, I, I find these characters just fascinating. What what drives them? What makes mm-hmm. them tick? Why their excesses? Um, so I so I was I was obsessed with Aubrey for for years, and then there was this um, dichotomy between these grand promises of how fracking was reshaping geopolitics with the fact that it doesn't make money, that there's this deep skepticism about the industry and this heavy short seller interest in it because the companies don't produce free cash flow. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that is a dichotomy worth exploring, that a business can be changing the world yet not be not make any money. And so I thought that was it, it, that was worth digging into. Who, who first steered you in this direction? Who, who said, hey, you should be looking more closely at this? So do you know um, John Hempton? I know the name, okay, sure. Okay, so John's a... Um, for a longtime pal of mine who really? lives in Australia, runs right. runs Bronte Capital, and he's the one who used to say that Aubrey McClendon was the most important um, guy in 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 America, um, with again some degree of hyperbole. But John was the one who first um, got me interested in Aubrey and uh-huh. got me focused on um, Chesapeake's dire financial condition. So he's an interesting character himself. Speaking of interesting characters, oh yes, his his writing is always quite fascinating. I get mm-hmm. his regular missives, and they're always. Um, it's so refreshing reading something that's just a little off kilter and certainly well thought out and, and interesting. So what made you think this was a mini book and not a full blown 300 page tome? Oh boy. So as I got into it, I realized it probably could have and should have been a longer book because trying to find a path through the fracking story that can be told in 30,000 words or so was a was a huge challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, my issue is purely a, a life one, to be, to be perfectly honest. Every time I've written a big book, it's ended up costing me, I'd say, a good six months to a year of my life where I am just gone. Right. And at this Isn't state, that the nature of writing uh, that books, is, though? That that is the nature of writing books, but at this stage of my life, I have kids at an age where I don't want to miss six months of their life, right. and so <laughs> it's um, so so it's hard. Mm-hmm. A totally totally understandable. Uh, in the book, you describe Audrey Aubrey's death. He drives this big SUV. He always drives too fast. He's texting while he drives, and he happens to slam into an overpass leading some people dead instantly, uh, leading some people to think, hey, he was just indicted. This could be a suicide with no suicide note and therefore full insurance and everything mm-hmm. else that comes with it. The police never found anything related to that. What, what are your thoughts on this? It's one of those great mysteries that you'll 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 never quite know. Um, along with why it is that Jeff Skilling actually resigned from Enron in in the in, in, at the in 2000, Aubrey's death is another of those mysteries. There, most many people believe it must have been suicide. He had just been indicted. Mm-hmm. His um, empire was in shambles. Um, Although that wasn't the first time his empire had crumbled. No, it was not the first time his empire had crumbled. But 
but but, but this was but, a big with, one. But with the indictment, this was this was a big one because Next even level. if even if people view an indictment as being unfair, nobody's going to do business with a guy who just got right. indicted, right? Tough to raise money. But but there are other people who say, but this was Aubrey. He drove too fast. He's always texting while he he drove. It's possible he was just exhausted and distracted. Uh-huh. And so I think the police department was unable to make a ruling either way. There's this quote in my book from the police captain saying, you know, we'll never know 100 percent what happened. Right. Huh. Quite quite interesting. Who else from the book stood out as a really interesting character to you? So I think um, I think EOG as a company is to right. me a really interesting character. It's former CEO Mark Papa who has a really nuanced view on the fracking revolution. He isn't a hundred percent pro fracking as 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 you might think. Um, really, but, but EOG, uh, well, he's 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 pro fracking, but he's not as sure that it's going to change the energy world forever as as other people are. He has a nuanced view, um, and so I liked setting up EOG as a counterpoint to Chesapeake to tell the other side of the story, because in the end. This isn't a book that says this whole thing is a fraud. It's gonna, it's destined for a bad, a bad ending. Um, I couldn't, I couldn't actually get there, mm-hmm. um, and so I wanted to tell both sides of the story to leave it a little bit open to the reader's judgment. The one thing for sure about the history of oil overall and the history of fracking is that everybody who ever makes predictions has been wrong, and so I'm, 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 I'm not smart enough to to say how it's going to end. So there's a theme that runs through all of your books. You're, you're never going to write the Steve Jobs, you know, uh, hagiography about how, you know, successful and innovative. The theme throughout all your books is there's always too much excess. There's always elements of fraud throughout. There are always problems, both legal, personal, what have you. It's more than just larger than life personalities. It's larger-than-life personalities who really step in it, to say the least. Uh, so from Enron to Fannie and Freddie to um, the writings you do about Wells Fargo, are you attracted to fraud and nefarious characters, or is it just a better story? Oh, that makes me sound dark indeed. You're, by the uh, way, I wish I could uh, – <laughs> when we get a picture later, she's sitting here dressed – I can't tell if that's black or blue. That's black. Okay, uh, all dressed uh, in black, black, dark hair. You you are um, I'm essentially. Goth. Oh dear. Right. Um, I honestly I don't know the answer to that. Actually, I think of I'm, I grew up in Minnesota, and I think of myself in many ways as as Minnesota nice. I have a hard time being rude to people. I Is don't that like have Canada that. nice? It's like Canada nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't I don't have that, and I don't actually like confrontation. I don't I don't particularly like fighting with people. So I'm not quite sure. I have. I haven't been able to analyze myself enough to know why it is that I have sort of come up with the specialty of writing about business gone wrong. If only you had an outlet to express your outrage. Oh, I know. Uh, Write a bunch of books about it. <laughs> I guess it just I guess it just interests me more than stories of of, of things going going perfectly. It right. feels it feels more real somehow. Um, um, and the analytical part of me loves trying to figure out how it went wrong. How things are working usually seems to be squishier and all these, you know generic phrases about leadership, et cetera, et cetera, whereas how things went wrong, it's usually very grounded in the in the really gritty specifics, and I like gritty specifics. I, I have a pet theory, which will eventually become a column, and the theory is that everybody's conception of the world is wrong because it's just examples of survivorship bias. Everything we see means that there are a thousand other things that failed. And so we assume, oh, this works, this pencil. Look, it's got an eraser and it's covered in paint and it's got a point. Oh, isn't that great? You don't see the millions of other devices that were attempted and failed. And so how else can you explain why people keep opening restaurants? Wait, restaurants are a terrible investment. Half of them go out in in six months. The 90% of the rest go out in two years. It's a terrible idea. And yet people keep opening restaurants. We all have this wrong view. You like to look at the seedy, fraudulent underside of things gone awry. I guess that's true. I guess I like, I think you can learn a lot from stories of business gone wrong, too, mm-hmm. because these, to me, the characters are never as simple as purely bad or purely good. Maybe some of them are. Bernie Madoff, I think, is as close as it gets to purely bad. But most of these stories aren't so much sort of clear cut criminality as they are a mixture of 
idealism, um, arrogance, um, hubris, um, a little bit of fraud tossed into the mix, uh-huh. um, a lot of wishful thinking. Um, and so they're very, they're very human stories. And that's, that's what draws me to them. I always want to understand, I guess it's a little bit, maybe it's a little bit of a version of the famous line from Anna Karenina, you know, every happy family right. is happy in the same way, but every unhappy family, that's where, you know, that's, it's unhappy in a different way. And so every story of business gone right is kind of the same. Every story of business gone wrong is really different and really fascinating. Don't, don't we learn more from from the mistakes and businesses gone wrong than the success stories? Uh, what do you learn from Google? Make the best search engine that and figure out how to monetize it. There's not a big lesson there. But the disasters, there's always lots of lessons. There's so many lessons. I mean, here's a gritty one from Wells Fargo, which 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 I find fascinating. Back in 2013, the LA Times did a story about all the sales pressure and the terrible um, impact it was having. And Wells Fargo ignored it because then CEO John Stump said, oh, well, this is only 1% of our workforce. So we are actually great, far from criticizing ourselves for this. We should be praising ourselves for this because only 1% of our employees has ever had a problem. And it's a classic example of using math to um, justify your wishful thinking because in a retail sales force that had turnover of 30 to 40 percent a year wow. and where that one percent measured the people who got caught, not the people who were pressuring right. them to engage in this behavior, not the people who quit because they couldn't do it and not the people who just did it because they and got away with it. It was a meaningless figure. Right. right. And so that's I, not math. That's rationalization. But so I love that. I love those kind of lessons. Right. And that's mm-hmm. so much more interesting interesting to me than how to be a great leader, exhibit compassion. I don't know. Uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm intrigued that there was a story in, in where, where was that, LA Times? Yes. And the company didn't take it seriously. Yep. There was, you know, the other bank that more or less came through the crisis pretty well was J.P. Morgan under Jamie Dimon. And they had an automated underwriting system called Zippy. <laughs> and um, it was a way to process more mortgages more quickly so you can move through more through the pipeline. The problem with Zippy was it occasionally would reject a mortgage. And so there was an internal document that the mortgage department created called Zippy Tips and Tricks. And it was all the ways you could tweak the inputs to make sure that Zippy would approve it. Um, and a local, I forgot which one it was. It was a local, not as big as the LA Times, but not the East Podunk Express. It was somewhere in between wrote a story about zippy tricks and and tips and you know the the company had the exact same answer that Wells Fargo did listen this isn't representative of how we do it zippy was set up and it's very effective here in 2006 and mortgages are just fine right uh, it's amazing how people's capacity to rationalize what's in their own self-interest back back to your point it's actually amazing how we don't see what we don't want to see Especially when our salary, to paraphrase Upton Sinclair, is based on on not seeing it. Or when your political ideology is based on not seeing it, per our little conversation on Twitter the other day. Um, Well, I just found it amusing that somebody was mansplaining gender-neutral pronouns to you. There is some kind of um, irony there. Some people are irony-impaired, especially uh, online. It doesn't come across. Well, I got into a war of words on with somebody on Twitter once, and it was um, over Larry Summers and his comments about women in math. And I actually defended Summers. Huh, um, really? And, yes. And, I have a great summer story. And, and for you. the um, anyway, this this exchange ended with the guy lecturing me about why I was wrong to defend Larry Summers. And I, I thought, listen this here, is just, little lady. This is just this is just the height of irony. <laughs> right. <laughs> listen here, little lady. Let me explain right. to you, you about how women. Let me let me explain to you why you should be so offended. You don't obviously don't understand what you're talking about. So let me explain to you why you should be so offended that Larry Summers said women didn't understand what they were talking about. It was very funny. Do you do you remember the column in the Boston Globe that just shredded the Harvard Endowment? It it basically this it won all sorts of awards. Not the writer, the editor on it went on to do the article that revealed all of the priest abuse in Boston. So it was that. So everybody involved in this article, uh, absolutely sterling reputation. I merely linked into it in a column and got a furious phone call from Summers about it. And I asked him about it. 
And his answer struck me as so disingenuous. I tracked that reporter down, called her, and basically she gave me, no, that's not true. No, I called him a dozen times. No, he said he was too busy saving the world to pay attention to to this. I was, I was just, so every time somebody defends Larry Summers, in the back of my head, I just think, yeah, um, yeah uh, no, don't, right. And he's a very public intellectual, and uh, I just decided I'm not going to write about him. And I probably shouldn't even talk about him anymore, but you brought it up, so I, I had to. Um, what, else, what else are you looking at these days that interests you? What, what's the next mini book going to be? Well, something that got my attention in this book, so part of what is keeping the chain of financing for fracking going is pension fund money. Because in this era of super low interest rates, it isn't just that fracking companies can raise debt and have low interest expense mm -hmm. given where interest rates are. It's also that in this world of very low returns elsewhere, particularly in fixed income securities, a lot of pension funds have been putting money in private equity firms. Sure. Private equity, in turn, has the highest allocation to the energy sector than they've had in like 20 years. They're really? shoveling billions of dollars into fracking, into shale companies. And that's part of what's keeping the okay, this is an overstatement, but the daisy chain of money of money going. And so thinking about this issue and the low returns of pension funds, um, and given that I live in Chicago, which has massive problems, as does the state of Illinois, has made me really interested in coming up with a way to explore this. So, so what's fascinating to me is the pension side of things, they have moved very heavily into hedge funds and private equity because for some reason, at least on the hedge fund, it's unexplained, there's a higher expected return for private equity right. um, than there is for stocks and bonds. I don't know why there's a higher expected return for hedge funds given their terrible performance over the past 10 years. Somebody else, was it Simon Lack, said the financial crisis wiped out all the gains of the entire hedge fund industry for the prior 20 years. Just that is a stunning. Number. That yeah. is a stunning. stunning the hedge picture. fund mirage. That's anyway, the but I, I don't know what I'll end up. That's that's a, that's a really interesting figure. I don't know what I'll end up doing with this because if Fanny and Freddie were an unsexy subject, I think pensions might be one step worse. So, so I'm going to tell you the problem with Fanny and Freddie are all the crazy anti GSE people. It, it adds. It injects a level of of insanity to it that makes it tedious. But if you look at let me mansplain to you what your next book should be. <laughs> if you, <laughs> I, I appreciate all ideas, whether if, they if come you, from men or otherwise. If you look at Charlie Ellis's book on the retirement crisis and his and and Jack Bogle, there have been you know these are legendary folks writing. People aren't saving enough. The other side of that issue, I'm gonna I'm not gonna give you another idea. I'm gonna encourage you to do that idea. The idea that pension funds are highly leveraged, highly exposed to alternatives. Uh, are looking for a much greater um, return than we should perhaps reasonably expect given current valuations, that's setting itself up for a disaster down the road. That, to me, maybe I'm wonky, but that's fascinating stuff. I think it's fascinating, too. I think it's fascinating, too. It just There are these words that, for whatever reason, just lack intrinsic appeal. Pension is one of those words. Mortgage is actually another word. Fannie and Freddie. Ah, it's like the death and yet subprime. <laughs> subprime was kind of fascinating. It, it it got to be fascinating after it caused the financial crisis, but I think part of the reason that it didn't that 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 nobody saw it coming was because mortgages, subprime mortgages. I mean, I don't know. It's like eat your spinach. It's just such an unappealing concept to think about. Agree to disagree. <laughs> um, do you? By the way, do you find it? I just was talking to a couple of other people about this recently. Do you find it a slog or do you enjoy doing the circuit if it's a reasonable period of time? So I, I'd say I'd say it's a mixture. I'm always happy when anybody wants to talk to me about something I've written because it means it resonated somewhere. Mm -hmm. So I'm grateful for any attention it, 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 it gets. I'd say I have less of a worry of a slog than I always have a when I've published something, my predominant emotion isn't excitement and look at me. It's fear that I've gotten something wrong, that I've made uh -huh. a mistake somewhere. It's um, and it's and it's sort of agony in within me because I always see the ways in which it could have been better after it's too late to do anything. It's about never it. done though, isn't that true for anything you write? That you could always there's always another draft waiting to happen. You can. Books are pretty set in stone at a certain point, point. Um, and so that's so I I, I have. 
trouble being as enthusiastic and excited as I as I should be because my my initial reaction isn't look at me it's let me duck. <laughs> so, so you're you're expecting to be told you were wrong. You know what I well, got... I already have been. I mean, I, I did this op-ed for the New York Times um, and they put a pretty incendiary headline that on it. That was that headline had nothing whatsoever it, to do it, with it, the article. It did not. Um, and I got The a, next financial crisis lurks underground. Right. I got a lot of flaming on Twitter for that um, for the headline. So for the record, can I inform listeners that writers don't get to write their own headlines? It's the editors who write that? The Times actually has a policy of not um, allowing people to look. To Bloomberg, see the everywhere. Yeah, yeah. It's, and, it's, and it's fine. Actually, they're, they're, the headline they put on it got attention. And in today's world where everything is drowned out by, by news of Trump, you know what? I, <laughs> I'm, I, I'm, I'm not going to complain. All right, that that's fair enough. So so let's um, let's jump into our speed round. These are the ten questions I ask everybody, oh, and, and we'll we'll plow through them. Tell us the most important thing people don't know about your background. Hmm. Let's see. I guess it's probably that I grew up in a mining town called Hibbing, which is in northern Minnesota. Uh-huh. And if you know it. It's probably because you're a Bob Dylan fan, because that's where Bob Zimmerman um, also grew up. And Hibbing has the two distinctions of being often the coldest spot in the United States, really? and of having the world's largest pit open uh, world's largest open pit iron ore mine. Huh. There you go. Interesting. <laughs> Tell us about some of your early mentors who helped you along with your career. Let's see. So I had two great teachers in high school who were brothers, Dan and Matt Bergen. Um, Dan was a English teacher and Matt was a math teacher. And Dan taught me to write and Matt made me believe that I was far better at math than I actually am, enough mm-hmm. so that I managed to get through a college major um, in it. And then I guess at Fortune, I think the real the real mentor I had was, was really Joan Nocera, who... Mm-hmm. Um, who really helped me learn how to tell a story. Um, when I got to Fortune, the knock on me was she's debatably smart, but totally unable to write. And I like to blame my Perfect th- hire for a magazine. <laughs> maybe like, she's smart, maybe but she's she can't smart, write. Maybe she's smart, but she sure can't You're write. You're hired. <laughs> well, I, I was a fact checker for my initial years. So oh, I was okay. really good at checking facts, <laughs> so it was fine. But um, if, if I've learned to write at all, it's probably because of Joe. Well, I have to tell you, you clearly have learned to write, and, and I really enjoyed uh, Saudi uh, America. Um, who influenced your approach to investigative journalism? Um, I would say probably I learned the most from Peter Elkind, who was mm-hmm. the um, my co-author on Smartest Guys in the Room. When I began to work with Peter, I thought I was going to learn the shortcuts for doing this, and I quickly learned there are no shortcuts. You talk to everybody, you call everybody, you call them back. If they don't call you, you back. You read every document, you go through the footnotes of every document, but you leave no stone unturned, and you go down a lot of rabbit holes because you never know if at the bottom of the rabbit hole you're going to find something that becomes the thread of your book or just sort of a vast black hole. <laughs> and you find a lot of the vast black holes. But um, but I think Peter Peter made me realize that it's just work and persistence. Tell us about some of your favorite books, be they fiction, nonfiction, uh, fraud-related, or something else. So my list is always changing, but I'd say right now the books I've been thinking about a lot are Team of Rivals by Doris Kearns Goodwin. Mm-hmm. And the reason I think about that book a lot is that it took a well-known period and looked at it through a different lens, you know, through the lens of these rivals who nonetheless became an incredibly effective cabinet. And I love that. For, was that for Abraham for Lincoln? Abraham Lincoln. Mm-hmm. And I love that 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 is a sort of lesson for writing about how you can take something that's well-known and see it through a different slant and make people learn and understand it in a, in a whole different way. It doesn't have to be this fresh thing that nobody's ever heard of before, you know, Abraham Lincoln's presidency. <laughs> but but, right. I, but I love that. I think that's very instructive. And then my favorite fiction book of late was a book called Homegoing. Um, Homegoing. Homegoing, which is about um, two sisters born in Africa. One stays there. One is taken away as a slave in the United States, and about it's about the different trajectories of these two um, these two families. And I'd say the reason I liked it so much is that it's a book that kind of ex- ex- excavates your own still still deeply held prejudices, and we all have some of them. Mm-hmm. And it's a book that really changes minds and souls. I think. 
hmm. on a very deep level. That's two. You have a third one? What's the last thing oh, you read? Oh, God. I've been rereading because my kids are reading it, and I will always love Lord of the Rings just for the sheer scope. Preaching to the choir. The sheer scope of Tolkien's imagination. And even though I know, and this whole conversation has been about how good and bad aren't always so simple, man, is there something so satisfying about a world where good is good and bad is bad? That's right. It's starting with The Hobbit and then straight, straight through. Straight on it's, through. Uh, absolutely. Yep. As a kid, I used to reread those over the summer, and then at a certain age, you kind of say, all right, I have to stop doing this. But they were fantastic. I just started again. It's again. never too late. <laughs> How old are you kids? Um, I've got a nine-year-old and a six-year-old. So let me let me jump ahead and ask a different question. Um, what do you do for fun out of the office? Oh, fun? <laughs> What's that? What do you do to stay <laughs> mentally or physically fit? So so I read a lot. Um, I'm a big yoga person, and I've done a kind of yoga called the Shtanga, which is, um, Shtanga. A, which is a self-practice for oh, 20 years now. Mm-hmm. So I usually... Well, you're pretty ripped. So I usually, because I work at home, I um, I usually just do my Shtanga practice at home. And, that's and you've been my, doing that for 20 I've years. I've been doing that for 20 years. Really? So what has changed since you became a writer? What do you think is the biggest difference these days? Oh, so much. I mean, the the whole firmament has changed. You know, it used to be that if you were going to be a writer, well, then you worked at a magazine and you were a journalist. And now some of the best, most interesting writing comes from people who aren't journalists, who, mm-hmm. who are publishing on blogs and, and elsewhere. So in some ways, it's incredibly freeing in that you don't have to be a full-time journalist to get heard and to, 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 be, to be a journalist. Um, but it's, of course, the other changes in the business have just undermined the whole financial foundation of, mm-hmm. of, of journalism. And so that's it's really different. If you could have told me when I started working at Time Inc. back in 1995 and Time Inc. was in the Time Built and Life Building and right. Rockefeller Center that time would be long gone from there and the magazines would be being sold piecemeal, I uh-huh. would never have believed that. What are these blogs you refer to? Well, I mean, yours. You know, people, 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 people who have really smart, great things to say and are really good writers don't have to be writing for Fortune magazine now. That that's reasonable. Um, and I wasn't fishing for anything there. I just but, but, but uh, was true. joking. I think uh, that's a good thing about. T- this tell us what you're really excited about in in the world of journalism or books or writing. Well, I guess when everything is getting ripped apart comes opportunity, right? Mm-hmm. And so the world of journalism is getting ripped apart right right now, and it's it's not getting any better. But out of that, I think, comes new opportunities for storytelling, whether it's these little books that Columbia is doing, like Saudi America, whether it's podcasts mm-hmm. like, like you're doing, but new opportunities to create content in ways that are relevant to people. And so it's still storytelling at the end of the day and communicating. And so I guess I'm trying to believe that where there's disruption, there's also opportunity. That's that's pretty fair. Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. Oh, so let's see. I could do two of those. Do um, both. I really struggled through my math major in college. Math was easy, easy, easy for me until I hit the really upper level theoretical stuff, where all of a sudden it was like a black wall came down in front of my eyes. I, I would so sit, totally relate to that. I would sit doing. The, we would have these math. Um, exams that were 48-hour take-home exams, and they would be proofs. And I would look at them, and I wouldn't even be able to start. Like what language And I would hear people around me scratching away. They just had the insight. And I, I would say persevering through my math major was a really good a really good lesson, um, even though, I mean, I fought for a C in, in, in one class. So that's what you um, call a got, failure. I'd never gotten a C in my life. Oh, yeah, learning, okay. learning that you're not very good at something. Um, 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 so that was, but I learned more from sticking through that than I did from all the things I was I was good at. And then I'd say I probably failed in my first job. I was a terrible analyst at, at Goldman. You were and there for three years, I was there though, for weren't three you? years. I ended up... Um, I ended up sticking it out, but I think I learned I learned a lot from that about importance to deta- detail, about committing to where you are instead uh-huh. of if, if you're going to be there at all, instead of having a bad don't attitude. Don't half-ass it. Uh, don't half-ass it, right? Um, if you're there, then just do it and 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 behave um, instead of why voicing. were you were you misbehaving at Goldman in terms of I mean in terms of the work. Not I think in terms I acted. Of... I think I acted like I didn't want to be there. Mm-hmm. I think I was And it young. took them three years to pick that up. Yeah. <laughs> I thought I, they're I, the smartest guys I, I, in the room. I pulled it together after after my first year, but um, that was that was a lesson to me because failing in your first job is a hard 
is a yeah. hard thing when you get very negative feedback from people. Yeah, it crushes your confidence. So I, I would imagine. Um, so if an, a millennial came up to you or a recent college grad said they're thinking about becoming a fill-in-the-blank writer, book author, journalist, what sort of advice would you give them? I would tell them to start writing and to write a lot because the only way you get to be a better writer is by writing a lot. And you can get to be a better writer. You have to have some innate skill at it, mm -hmm. I guess, but you can learn and you will learn. It's a craft. And that's why people call writing a craft because a craft is something that you can get better at. You can uh, get better at. And so I think that's the most important one. But I would say also that especially given how uncertain financially this life is right now, um, that you have to really, really be deeply curious and not be able to rest unless you've explored your curiosity, because that's the thing that makes it makes it worth doing, right? To me, <laughs> wonky as it may be, but getting to spend a year thinking about Aubrey McClendon and fracking, I mm -hmm. was deeply curious about this, and I would not have been able to rest if I hadn't eventually done something about that. And that's what makes it all worthwhile to me. Sometimes I, you have an itch, you just have to scratch. And I think if you don't have that, if you're more practically minded in some ways, that maybe this isn't, especially right now, the right, the right place. So you're a little obsessive about the topics you cover. Do you, do you, impart that on on the college grads and say you have to be all in or what because yeah. that that's similar to the failure answer as well i say you have to be all in because otherwise you won't make that additional phone call you won't you'll do what you have to do or what you think you have to do but you won't pursue that loose dangling end that mm -hmm. may up may end up becoming the most piece, important piece of information that 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 you got and so you have to be just really really deeply passionate passionately curious hmm, quite fascinating and our final question what do you know today about writing and investigative journalism and book authoring that you wish you knew back in 95 when you first started 20 plus years ago? I think what I wish I had known about writing is that being a good student isn't always helpful. And what I mean by that is that when you're a good student, you think you have to show everybody everything that you've learned because, God forbid, the teacher thinks you didn't, you missed this little nuance, right? right. So you're going to throw everything at the reader in order to show them that you've mastered this. And I think it's actually sometimes hard for good students to be good writers because you need to let go of that. You need to learn to tell a story and you need to step back from all of your facts. Somebody said to me once that facts are like lights on a Christmas tree. You actually can have too many. Um, and I thought that was a, a great a great line. And you need to tell a story that communicates with people, not try to impress people by how, with how much you know. Quite interesting. We have been speaking with Bethany McLean. She is the author of Saudi America, as well as Smartest Guys in the Room and numerous other books. If you enjoyed this conversation, we'll be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes. And you can see any of the other 200 plus interviews we've recorded. Uh, you can find that on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, Bloomberg.com, wherever finer podcasts are sold. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at Bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff who helps put together these conversations each week. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. Medina Parwana is our audio engineer slash producer. Taylor Riggs is our Booker producer. Michael Batnick is our head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. <laughs>